You're listening to Louisiana Insider, a superlative guide to a great state's destinations. Hosted by Errol Laborde, executive editor of Louisiana Life Magazine. It's not Louisiana song. It's my favorite melody. It's not Louisiana song. Hearing it echo through the cypress trees. Understanding Louisiana is a pretty complex state. You, you know, you go back to the politics of Louisiana, Huey Long in the area of populism, and like Louisiana was uh, certainly a pioneering populist state. And one of the benefits of that, and some people say one of the controversies, was the hospital system that New uh, Louisiana had, what became known as the the charity hospital system. And over the years, it took care of many people in many different places. The prime place, of course, was the charity hospital uh, in, in, in New Orleans, but there were others uh, scattered throughout the state. There was no restrictions as far as who they took care of, and a lot of people owe their lives and existence to uh, the charity hospital. It's quite an interesting story. With me today is Dr. James Sheravello, who was a, uh, uh, who pretty much grew up as a doctor in the charity hospital system, uh, was there for about 11 years from the the mid-1960s to the late 1970s. Uh, eventually, he moved on to Shreveport, where he did a, uh, he practiced there. He's also an artist, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But what we wanted to do is talk a little bit, and, and this is a time when the whole, the building, the charity hospital building uh, in New Orleans is uh, undergoing some uh, analysis as far as what to do with it. It's been, uh, it's been closed since Katrina. But, but we're talking about the charity hospital in the, in Louisiana, which I, I think is an interesting story. Uh, Dr. Sheravella, th- th- thank you for joining us. Give us a little bit of history uh, about the state's hospital program. Well, thank you for having me, Errol. And uh, it is a very unique system in that the first charity and, and the one the building people see down on Tulane Avenue is actually the sixth uh, building known as in that line. The first one started in the French Quarter, not too far from where the uh, uh, Royal Orleans Hotel is now, and it was uh, started by a donation and from the will of a of a, of a French uh, seaman and uh, shipbuilder who gave his will to start a hospital for the poor. Uh, that hospital burnt down, a hurricane destroyed another one, another one was moved, and the fifth hospital was actually built about a block from where this current hospital is. And uh, uh, it, in, in the mid-1800s, the Sisters of Charity actually took over the hospital. So the name is twofold. It, it was a, ho- a hospital of charity. It was a hospital where anybody could go get taken care of, receive medical care, surgical care, and not have to pay. But the Sisters of Charity are really responsible for its name, where Charity Hospital came from. And they also did Hotel Dew Hospital back in the day. That was the Sisters of Charity also. Charity was very unique. And like you say, it was the, it was the main driving force of the whole system. Seven other hospitals spread all over the state where anybody could go get medical care from Monroe to Independence to Baton Rouge, Pondville, Lake Charles, uh, even Shreveport and had a charity hospital, not in that system, but functioning the same way. 
And so it's a pretty impressive state. Did any other state have anything quite like that? No, not not like that. There are there are states that have maybe a hospital like that. L.A. County in Los Angeles, Cook County, uh, Bentaub, Grady in Atlanta. But if you were indigent and needed care, and you were a thousand miles away, you had to go there to get you care or not get it. So there was no state that had it widespread all over the state like, like this state did. Now, what would be the equivalent of that today? Uh, would that be part of the, uh, the LSU system? Well, what, what, well, LSU, LSU Oshner now, and uh, Oshner has taken over the, uh, the LSU hospital up here. And, uh, uh, and you're in Shreveport. Yeah, in Shreveport. So uh, that's, the, that's, that's the analogy, but uh, uh, it's not a free system, you know, so it's, uh, it's a two-page system. And I'm sure, you know, I was in private practice for a number of years at a private hospital, and we took patients all the time that couldn't afford medical care. So no, no patient usually is refused in an emergency room when they come in and need help. Now you're a native of New Orleans, and uh, and you got your medical degree from Tulane. Correct. And then once you graduated, you uh, you went to to charity, and you started off as an intern there. Tell Correct. us a little bit about what charity was like in those days when you were first there. Well, I started my medical school in '64, and I graduated in '68. Back then, that first year was called an internship. Now they're all called house officers, one, two, three, depending on how many years you stay. And initially I was, uh, so if you were gonna do a general surgery residency or training, you did an internship in four years after that. Uh, it was a, it was a, it's hard to describe it in one word. It was a huge place. It's a million square foot building, a million square feet. And these 18 floors, right? It is 18 floor. The central portion goes up to 18 floor. The working part of the hospital was 12 stories. The 12th floor was all operating rooms, all operating rooms. And the most unique feature of charity is it served two major medical schools, LSU and Tulane. And you could almost draw a line down the, down the middle. It was separate but equal on each side. So basically, for the most part, the east side was Tulane patients and the west side was LSU patients. But there were times when we admitted so many papers, we might have uh, uh, patients over in what would be a LSU ward and same with them. On the operating suites, you had equal neurosurgery operating room, a cardiac surgery operating room, ENT rooms on each side that were designated Tulane or LSU. And also one of the main features on the 12th floor were the amphitheaters. You had Delgada and Miles amphitheaters. And both of these people in the 1800s donated significant funds to charity hospital. And those operating amphitheaters or auditoriums on the 12th floor bore their names. Uh, they were, uh, uh, LSU called as a pit, Tulane called as the uh, bullpen where the students were given a given a patient to examine. The, the seats would be full of students and residents. And the person who brought that system to Tulane was Alton Oshna, who was a main driving force in development of Tulane in early days. Now, what made the difference whether or not, you know, if a person goes in there and has no medical 
background and doesn't know which way to go, would make the difference whether or not they were treated by Tulane or LSU. Would they? And, and I hope it wasn't football that. results because I'd well, be worried if uh, if I got <laughs> Tulane. Every other day was a Tulane or LSU day. So today might be a Tulane midday. If you'd never been in charity, you would go to the hospital today, say you needed, whether you had high blood pressure crisis or had an appendectomy, you'd be given a number. So your number today would be T21 dash a six digit number. That number stayed with you for the rest of your life. If you came back a month from now on a LSU day, but had a T number with a complication from your surgery, you'd be seen by the surgeon or the, the service that took care of you. If you came in with another emergency and it had a different number, you'd be taken care of whoever admitted that day. So it was uh, strictly by chance as to who was admitting that day, whether you became a Tulane or LSU patient. Now, you being a Tulane student, did the Tulane students feel that that you all were better trained than the LSU students and, and vice versa? Was there a appreciable? No, we, it was, no it, of course, uh, there were people who said, oh, yeah, we get better trained than them. We operate on the same patients. We did the same things. Uh, our staff taught them. We never operated together. I had very good friends on the LSU staff. One of them, Larry Oye, who's the chancellor of the whole LSU Health Science Center right now, and helped me a lot with this book and interviews and, and stuff. In fact, there's a picture of Larry in the book from a story uh, early on. But uh, no, we, we, we unfortunately had to succumb to the fact that their football team was a lot better than two lanes, except in 1973 when we beat them 14-0. But uh, other than that, the training was pretty much equal. Uh, we got along well. Uh, you never operated with them. The occasion didn't rise. It wasn't set up like that. So as an intern or whatever the proper term was, did you deal with all types of medical issues across the board? Well, there were, there were different ways you could do your internship. I wanted to be a surgeon. So I wanted to do what's called a straight surgery internship. Everybody, every intern had to spend one month in the emergency room and one month in the admit room. And I, 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 since I brought this up, charity, another unique feature of charity is that the emergency or the trauma room saw trauma only. Other hospitals, you went into one door, if you were cut, stabbed or shot, blood pressure, diabetes, it was the same room. Charity Hospital had a West and East admit where these medical emergencies went. Surgical emergencies went to the emergency room is what we call it, or the trauma area. Trauma specialty was not a specialty then. We, we did everything, we saw everything. But, it, but as a surgeon, you just saw the surgical problems from a dog bite to somebody's shot. And, uh, uh, you know, it just, uh, you just, you just did it all. Uh, as an intern, you start off taking care of patients. You might get to do a hernia repair. You might need to do a, 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 her a hemorrhoid repair, but basically you were learning how to take care of sick patients. But the charity hospital is where all of the, uh all the crimes, all the shootings, all the things that go on at nighttime, all, all of those kind of things went to Charity Hospital. Uh, yes. That must have been, what was that like? Like getting people who had been 
shot and some sort of incident and then you know well it's uh i mean it just was the way of it I, 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 if i may i'll jump and tell you one story one night well as a first year resident after you were an intern you were in charge of the emergency room so you stayed down there for a month and for two weeks you ran a 12-hour shift where you were there from seven in the morning to seven at night or seven at night to seven in the morning one night it was a friday night rollers lined both sides of the hall patients waiting to be admitted and the EMTs are rushing in a woman, big, oversized lady. Doc, this one shot seven times in the head, rushing, almost pushing people. I said, slow down. If she shot seven times in the head, another two seconds is not going to make any difference. They put her in the trauma room. Everybody jumped on her. I got up to her head. People are taking blood pressures, taking her clothes off. Her face was completely black and blue. She was soaking wet. She had blood all over her. And there was a bullet hole right in the middle of her forehead between her eyes, except in her forehead. She had bullet holes in every other part of the body. I look at her eyes, expecting to find dilated pupils from a dead person and then ready to call the transplant team. And her pupils are equal, they're normal. At this point, the nurse calls out a normal blood pressure. Somebody else says she's moving her extremities. I said, get all her clothes off. Let's see what's going on and shave her head. She had bullet holes through both arms and both legs and her abdomen, but didn't hit anything. It went through fat. Everything missed everything. The kill shot was the one through the middle of her forehead. And on closer examination, the bullet had hit her forehead, went under her scalp, did not penetrate her skull, and blew out the back of her scalp. We sent her the x-ray, she had no bony injuries, and a little while later, her two daughters walk in. And the story went that the day before she had thrown out her old man, he came back that night begging to let, her in, let him in to get his clothes. She lets him in and he pistol whipped her, beat her up. Then he apologized and said, I'm gonna bring you to charity put her in the car, brought her to the Mississippi River, threw her in and shot, started shooting at her. She was holding on to a drainage pipe and screaming and he left, I guess he ran out of bullets and somebody brought her to charity. We sold her up and sent her home and I saw her in two weeks and took her stitches out. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> now they were, they were more severe and interesting thing happened. For the first two thirds of my training, we saw a lot of stab wounds and we saw a lot of pistol wounds, the Saturday night special, 32 caliber, 22 caliber. Later on in the 70s is when the high caliber things, the AK-47s and the more powerful bullets came in causing more damage. And the residents then were dealing with very severe, uh, we did them too, but the, the knife wounds almost stopped. Once the high caliber weapons they came went, They went to much higher caliber bullets as, as they, they see today. Wow. Now, now the people who actually commit the crime, sometimes they wind up as patients too, because I mean, do you have to have police to, to restrain them or? Well, we'd, uh, we would see patients from parish prison. And uh, I remember going in, uh, 
going into a trauma room once to get uh, some IV to start an IV. And I'm greeted by the sight of a, a parish prisoner uh, from parish prison with his left wrist handcuffed to the roller. The New Orleans policeman is standing on his left side. The right hand of the prisoner is on the policeman's gun. He has reached across his chest and he has his hand on the policeman's gun in the holster. The right hand of the policeman is on that hand and it was left hand, he's trying to pound this guy in the head to get him to let go. In my eye, all I can see is this gun going off with bullets bouncing all over this, this terrazzo floor and, and these you know, walls. Without, without taking a break, he looks at me, he says, listen, there's a couple of my buddies sitting down there in the nursing station. Would you mind go giving them and tell them to come give me a hand? I did so and they took care of the guys. So we saw the prisoners and every once in a while, somebody who committed the thing, yeah, we, they brought, they get into, so we treated all of them, anybody alike that came in with an injury. Now, I was just thinking that the, um, during the time you were there, I mean, a couple of like just really major tragedies, like the time of the uh, airplane crash out in Kenner, uh, was that was that during the time that you were there? Or? That was a little before my time. I think the major, and in my book, I even have a, a chapter called Breaking News, and uh, three or four major events. The, mo the most that impacted was the Howard Johnson shooting in, 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 in 70, 70, actually 72, 73. It started in 72 when this fellow shot two policemen up by the uh, central lockup, and then he kind of disappeared for a while. And then on new, I think uh, later on, about a week later, he made his way to the top of the Howard Johnson shooting people and starting fires as he got to the top and just started shooting and assassinating a, a policeman with a 44 Magnum rifle. Um, uh, I believe it was like a dozen people were killed. Uh, he killed the manager who was operated on by a good friend of mine. I was actually on an out of town rotation at that time, but uh, I was have been able to interview, oh, four or five of the doctors taking care of these people. And not only that, I was able to interview a fireman who actually climbed up the hook and ladder to the eighth floor to save people and wound up having his arm shot off. Uh, just a young hero, and I don't use that term very lightly, but uh, Tim Erson, and he's a, he's a ship captain or a charter boat captain out of Shell Beach, and he uses the moniker Captain Hook right now. Well, you know, there's one person from reading about an incident I've always been interested in. One day I want to do something, a story or something, there was a, a motorcycle policeman named Persigio uh, who was there, and back then, the uh, the motorcycle police when they all wore white helmets, and so right. he was he was down there and his white helmet was like a, a target for this guy, but what was unusual? Okay, here's a cop, you know, motorcycle cop. He was also a nationally recognized authority on roses. Uh, he would go around to uh, to rose shows around the country, and uh, and I'm told that on his burial site on his tomb, there's like a uh, an image of a rose. So yeah, that was a, a very traumatic experience. How about the everyday things? I assume you got like a lot of heart attacks. Would that be a very common thing? Well, they did, but that would be taken care of by the medical service. So uh, one of the things that uh, you have to realize in the 60s, certainly, and not until the late 70s, the coronary bypass operation as it's known today 
wasn't done. Not only that, the head of the medicine department at Tulane didn't believe in it. So in the mid 70s and early 70s, when it came out, he would not let his residents study coronary arteries. You could study a right heart, you could study a person with a valve, but you could not inject dye into the coronary arteries and didn't believe that that operation helped. So one till I spent a whole 19, the whole year of 1975 at the Oshner Clinic under John Oshner and Dr. Noel Mills, I learned how to do the operation and came back and did the first coronary bypass at charity in 1976 on the two-lane service. And uh, we had to find the patients. So I told my residents, I said, any patient you've got that's taken nitroglycerin and they don't have a very serious illness, I wanna see them. And the first fellow we found uh, had come in for a, a vascular problem or I forget what it was, but we did a, a two vessel bypass on him and then had the cardiology fellows take care of him, help us take care of him. We consulted them to see him. Then another patient came up that needed uh, more surgery and she, I did a, the first internal mammary artery graft done at LSU. Well, the next time they sent us a patient. So it was the first time that the Tulane cardiology fellows actually referred a patient for bypass surgery. And one of the things that contributed that besides the fact that we had been successful in the first two was that the chairman of the medicine department had retired, the one that did not believe in bypass surgery. And so these younger fellas realized when they getting ready to go out and practice, that was becoming the state of the art was sure. bypass surgery. So it, it changed in 1976, 1975. Yeah. Well, uh, pardon me for injecting a personal story, but there, one time many years ago, I was at a luncheon and I happened to be sitting across the table from John Oxner. And I was talking about his business. And of course he was like leading, I don't know the world, but he, he was a leader in heart transplants. And I was saying, Dr. Oxner, to be able to transplant a heart in somebody. I mean, that must be like a great feeling just to have, you know, to know that, that have that feeling. And he says, ah, it's all cut and stitch. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, being, I, I, of all the operations I've done, I, I think I've done just about everything you could do from adult to congenital heart. I've never done a transplant. And it's a, it's a, I, I, can, I can't imagine the feeling of taking out and seeing nothing in the chest. So, but, Technically, the transplant is not that difficult an operation. Where the difficulty comes in is managing the immunosuppression and the rejection and those kind of things. Because those patients can be sick if, if they reject the heart, it's, it's, their life depends on it. I mean, it's a technically challenging operation. I'm not belittling it at all, but that was John. John did it all. I was fortunate to work with him from a year. For a year, we got to be good friends. We played golf together. He taught me how to operate on blood vessels and the heart, and he never stopped. I mean, he just was a whirling dervish is the way I describe him in the book. He was an incredible guy, and uh, he had been trained by DeBakey. Uh, you probably know the story that uh, DeBakey had trained under his father, Dr. Oshner, and uh, when DeBakey moved from Tulane to, to Houston, it was just natural that, that John would go over there and train and almost stayed in Houston. 
And uh, the head of the Ochsner Clinic flew to Houston and told him, he says, John, he says, you're a great surgeon. You're gonna be a great surgeon no matter where you go, but there's no other hospital that will have your name on it. And uh, so he, he came back. I was make as a resident under him, we, we would work up the patients, which means you go examine them, look at their studies, and then you would present them to him. In other words, Dr. John, this is a 65 year old man who presents with chest pain, his coronary angiogram shows X, Y, Z. So I'd brought this man into the room. I'd already told him Dr. Ashton was coming. And I introduced him and the man says, who are you? And he says, Oxner, Oxner, I'm John Oxner. He said, well, I don't, who are you? And he kept saying it. And Dr. Ashton was getting frustrated. I said, you know, he's, his name's on the floor mat in the soap. <laughs> so anyway, Dr. John got a kick out of that. The, uh, so across the board, like on a, on a normal night, and I've mentioned heart attacks. I mean, I'm trying to find what, what the most common maladies are that are seen in that kind of system. Oh, well, you know, just you can just open up a medical book or surgical book and scan the pages. Uh, uh, we saw a lot of gallbladder disease. We took out a lot of gallbladders. I think one, one month when I was a third, I, took, I did a dozen one month. Uh, another operation that we did a lot of that is, I don't know that residents even know how to do them was gastrectomies, stomach operations. There was no Tagamet. There were none of these super antacids that we take today. There was no such thing as Gaviscon and all these antiacids. So we would see a lot of the complications of peptic ulcer disease, perforation of ulcers, bleeding ulcers, intractable pain. And we did a lot of stomach operations. As a third year resident, that was the biggest operation we, we strive to do. So we did a lot of those. We did a lot of amputations for end-stage vascular disease from diabetes or just plain arteriosclerosis. And then appendectomies, uh, we saw a lot of burns. And what you have to remember is, you know, in New Orleans, open gas heaters heat a lot of these shotgun houses, little open logs in the bathroom or in the living room. Kids' nightgowns and pajamas were, were flammable then. They would get cold clothes and their, their clothes would catch on fire uh, besides just regular house bars. So we, we treated a lot of burns. And at that time, sir? Go ahead. At that time, there was no burn unit. So you would have a 12 or 14 bed ward. You might have one patient that had his gallbladder out. The next one had been shot and the next one had a burn, maybe a 50, 60% burn covering all his body. The treatment of burns when I was a student was silver nitrate and silver nitrate turned everything black, but that was what we used to try and fight infection. Then a, a medicine called sulfamylon kept along as a white cream, but it burned when we put it on, but it, it would help fight infection. And then it would change into silverdine, which didn't burn as much, but uh, it wasn't until, uh, Gee, um, I'm trying to think, maybe 74 or 73 that the burn unit opened up on the second floor. And that opened up as a result of the upstairs lounge fire in the French Quarter, uh, which you may remember the disgruntled guy 
threw in lighter fluid and set the set the stairs on fly, fire and people would just burn to crisp on the on the bars trying to get out. Oh. Um, you know, when you mentioned those heaters that, yeah, for a long time, I don't know if many people have them now, but people had those space heaters. Uh, and besides the problem that they were fire hazard, I always heard the other thing is that they weren't vented. And so they really, they really absorbed the oxygen in the room. Well, they put all carbon monoxide. Yeah. And that's that you're right. They were not vented. I had a, if you want to hear another little story, I had a lady come in uh, and she had had a fight with her boyfriend and she lived in an uptown second floor apartment with French doors and a very small balcony. She was very despondent and she said she was going to kill herself. She went home, she took towels and soaked them in water and put them under all the doors. She turned on the gas jets to the stove, turned on the gas jets to these little heaters we're talking about and didn't light any of them and sat there awaiting her fate. She was gonna kill herself. And she sat there and she sat there and the rooms are filling up with, 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 with gas. And she starts thinking, you know, is this guy worth it for me to kill myself? I mean, what am I doing? So she went and turned off all the gas jets. Then she lit a cigarette uh -huh. and the whole place exploded blew her out through the French doors. She came in fractures and, multi, and, and like 50 or 60% burns of all her body. I was a first year resident then. I remember taking care of her in one of the four floor wards and back to East 410. I remember she was in the first bed and took care of her for a whole month. But uh, tragic story and just, you know, but one, one of those charity stories. Yeah. I remember somebody told me who was, uh who was close, maybe you remember Professor Longhair, the musician oh, uh, yeah. on that, um, that she was part of his team. And she says, that actually what causes that, well, he was, he had heart problems to begin with, but that night was a cold night. Uh, he had the space heater on and because it was cold, he closed all the doors and all the windows shut and that same sort of thing happened that, they, uh, that all the oxygen burned out and he was, really, he was really killed by his space heater. Yeah, well, carbon, those things put off carbon monoxide. Carbon monoxide binds the hemoglobin and doesn't let the oxygen get to the red cells and it, people poison themselves. Did you ever work in the maternity ward? Did as a student. Did, did as, a, as a student, you, uh, you had to spend uh, a month on in-town OB and also out-of-town OB. So actually in September of uh, 67, when the Saints kicked off their first uh, football game and the guy ran it back for a touchdown. I was up at Pineville on out of town OB. And then that next uh, Mardi Gras, actually uh, February, I was on in town OB. Uh, so yeah, as a, as a resident though, you, you didn't, you didn't take care of OB because just you weren't, if, unless you were an OB resident. Yeah. Yeah. When we're talking about rhythm and blues, I mean, I, you know, Ernie Cato, the uh, and he had a, a show once a week on WBOZ, and his famous statement. He was so proud. He said over and over during during his show, "The Charity Hospital, baby," and that was a real that was a real honor for him. I always thought that if they open a open hospital, they should call it. You know, the uh, the name after Ernie Cato. It was yeah. it was so popular. Uh, yeah, um, we're talking to the Dr. James Sherella. Sheravella, 
who has a book out and it's called Charity's Children, uh, The Long Days and Nights of the Iron Men. Why do you call, who are the Iron Men? Well, it's a good question. Uh, and I'm glad you asked me. And uh, first of all, Charity's Children were anybody who trained at Charity in the capacity of a physician, a nurse, technician, or uh, any patient who came in, was born there, died there, or was taken care of. The first day of my internship, my third year resident challenged me of what it would take to finish the residency. He kind of doubted I could do it. And he said, you're gonna have to, and he listed all these things, what I'd have to do. He says, if you finish this, if you finish at the end, you may be an Iron Man. It was a term, it was a non-gender term. It didn't refer to the fact that only men could be Iron Men. Uh, but there were no women in the program in 1968. In fact, the first woman that came along that was a two-lane surgery intern didn't come till 19, I believe, 72 or 73. And then another one came, and then another one didn't come till 1976. And if you want, those women were Iron Men, but in the day when I started, it was a challenge to be an Iron Man. So that's where the term Iron Man come from. The term had really got out of use later in the residency, and we would jokingly use it. But uh, it was a, it was a challenge to fit it. The, the hours were long, and many a days you saw the sun rise and set from the 12th floor operating room. Uh, there was no such thing as it's four o'clock; it's time to go home. You uh, you stayed until the surgery was through and the patients were through. Uh, the first day I was a third year resident, I started operating on three o'clock. It was a Friday of July 4th weekend. It was a payday and a full moon. And anybody who works in the emergency room knows that full moons are bad deals, baby. You're going you're gonna to work hard. And uh, I started operating at three o'clock. I would come down to the emergency room and the resident would say, do this one next. He's got this. Do this one. You pick a child. I operated all night. We admitted 13 patients. At six in the morning, we stopped operating. We went down and uh, made rounds on everybody. Then we had to have staff rounds. So one of the professors came over, we made rounds, had breakfast. Then we went to grand rounds where they presented a couple of cases. I made rounds again with my third year resident. I went up to my room on the 14th floor and it was around noon or one o'clock. I hadn't slept since I don't know when. And I had my scrub suit on and my white coat. And I said, I'm going to lay down across the bed just to, for a minute. And I laid down. And the next thing, it was dark. I woke up and I fell off the bed. I didn't know where I was. It was 8 o'clock at night. <laughs> and I, we didn't have beepers. There were no cell phones. We had, we had pagers. In other words, you'd have a thing that would beep and it would give you a message. And I picked up the phone, called my wife. We had company coming to dinner that night. In <laughs> fact, the company was a good friend I'd grown up with whose parents used to own Albert Wegman Drugstore on the corner of Jeff Davis and Canal, Canal Street. Sure, I know, yeah. Okay, so I called him and they said, well, Merle and Terry are here, where are you? And what can you say? <laughs> you, know, you just woke up. But that was not not an uncommon day. It just, you, you, you stayed and operated until it was all gone. I want to go back, when you said it was a full moon, so you knew it was going to be a busy day, is that like an urban legend or is there some kind of scientific backing for that? 
I think it's urban legend, but but let me tell you, it 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 it, it occurs. Paydays were the worst because people would get get paid and go out and just party and maybe drink too much and then you know kind of go nuts. So we, we knew paydays were such. And then holidays, Fourth uh, of July was always one, and uh, I think that's I think that Friday was the sixth. So it was it, the, the holiday carried over, but. We always kind of talk about full moons, you know, don't want to be on call on a full moon. Well, I'm just wondering, I mean, it could, could make sense. I mean, because uh, the sky would be brighter the night of a full moon. And so right. it seems like it could be more conducive to things yeah. happening. Yeah, I, it, it was what it was. <laughs> okay, I want to talk about your, just briefly about your, your current life. You retired from medicine, what, in the 1970s, I believe? But 2003. Okay. I developed uh, arthritis in my hands, so I had to stop. Okay. Um, Having both hands, or uh... it was mainly my. It was both hands. It was mainly actually my right hand, because uh, I'm right-handed. But as time grew on, I, I've had surgery on my left hand to remove some bones and cartilage and stuff. But it just got too painful at the operating room, and it just uh, couldn't do it. Do you miss it? No, no okay. I miss the people, I miss the camaraderie, I uh, hear from patients, uh, but as far as the medicine's changed a lot, uh, uh, the technology's fantastic, I'm not sure the care is the same. And, 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 and at the end of the book, I, I question, I think the days of the Ironman are gone. You know, one thing that amazes me is that, like, when I go in like maybe once a year for my physical and they tell you, well, take a blood test. So you sit there maybe a minute and they draw your blood. All the stuff that they can tell <laughs> from drawing blood. Yeah. I mean, it seems, I don't know if they're making up some things or something like that, you know, but just, uh, I'm just amazed the amount of information they get. Well, it's, it's changed. And I can tell you back then we drew most of the blood because there was no that many blood technicians. So the, that was the intern on a medical student's job. We had little glass tubes with red stoppers. A red top tube was for a, a blood count, a regular hemoglobin and white blood count and hematocrit. Then they had green top tubes, purple top tubes, and that depended on whether you wanted a liver chemistry or, or a, a, a blood sugar, these kind of things. Now, like you said, they take one tube and you get back 15 or 20 tests from it, you know? Amazing. So the technology is incredible. We didn't have CAT scans back then. We didn't have, there was no CAT scan. They, I don't think they were, they weren't even invented, but we certainly didn't have any at charity. Uh, if you go in a hospital or if you've ever been a patient and you have an IV, there's that machine called an IVAC. It's that thing that regulates the amount of drops per minute. And if it kinks off, it beeps and makes all this noise. We didn't have those. You looked at your watch, you, there were so many drops per CC and you time by your watch how many cc's a minute the patient was going to get. When we first started, Charity made all their own IVs up on the sixth floor. There was a, a lab up there. So all the IVs were in glass bottles, reusable glass bottles. Not until later did I, the, the IVs in these bags, these plastic bags come along. Um, the gowns were not paper, they were cloth, they were reused. Uh, the scrub sponges we used at the sink to wash our hands and sterilize our hands were reusable. Uh, it was a different time. There was 
very very few plastics. In other words, they are such all the a lot of the instruments were metal and stainless steel, but a lot of those now are replaced by some plastic uh, instruments. Right. Uh, yeah, it is interesting to think the way it's changed. Um, but the other thing about the blood test is the other thing. If it used to be, if you your blood was being tested, it might take a week or so to get oh. the results. Now it's a matter of hours. Yeah. And then they, they email long. it to you. Yeah. Okay. It's like, if, if, if it's only hours because it takes them that long to call you, but they, they, they do it in minutes. Yeah. <laughs> but then they even call, they send it on the, you know, they send it on my email. So right. it's, really, it's really amazing. And, uh, and, you know, sometimes if you're worried about what the results are going to be and you, and you look at it, you know, sometimes that can be satisfying, I guess. But we'll talk about your, uh, it's quickly now about, your life now. You, you have a gallery, and you're an artist. I have a, a shop and a gallery, and uh, here in Shreveport. And uh, I spend half the year here, and, and then around June I go out to Wyoming. We have a place in Wyoming we bought in 2001, and uh, I do art shows out there. I do art shows in Montana in the Jackson Hole area. I paint. I do all paintings, and I sculpt in bronze, and uh, also make uh, bolos. Uh, bolo ties and buckles that I have cast in sterling silver. So uh, that happened uh, right when I retired. I started making mirrors, actually Western mirrors with uh, cowboy boots and hides and saddle parts. Uh, I didn't know how to paint then. And so uh, I later took uh, art lessons from a real well-known portrait artist up here in Shreveport. Uh, and so I, 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 I'm an artist. <laughs> And I would think that being a surgeon, I mean, it means you do well working with your hands, that if you're a good surgeon, then they could give you the tools toward being a good artist. Well, I know a lot of, it, it doesn't mean you're going to be a good artist. Yes. <laughs> so hopefully you are, but I know a lot of physicians that are either artists or a lot of woodworkers. Uh, a lot of my friends, uh, I know two, two orthopedic cert, three, Oh, I can name four or five that are incredible woodworkers and they do incredible furniture. So I think it's that left brain, right brain thing where you have to do something uh, with your hands and, and make stuff. And I've always enjoyed using my hands and, and, and more whether it was surgery. I didn't do any of that when I was working. I didn't have time to do it. It just opened up once I, uh, once I retired and your mind opens up and you're kind of free to explore. Has the art business uh, done okay in the year of COVID or did that slow down like everything else? Well, uh, what's interesting is with, with the COVID thing, uh, and I've talked, I will use two galleries. I use a, uh, not a gallery, a foundry in Dallas to do my bronzes and one in Cody, Wyoming when I'm up there. And I've talked to both of them this week about an upcoming project that I may get to do for the Children's Hospital in, in New Orleans. Um, they're busy. They are busy as can be. But last year, all the shows were, were shut down. So I usually only do four or five shows a summer. And the only one that happened was up in Whitefish, Montana. Uh, but all the rest were closed. So a lot of the artists were home. They didn't have a whole lot to do. So they painted or sculpted or made product. And uh, I think this summer with everything opening up is going to be a very busy summer because Europe is pretty much still shut down. So I think you'll see a lot of people traveling all over the country. It's the same thing I, I imagine uh, 
with musicians. He had all these musicians around the world who just weren't performing during the last year. Oh, good. And so what do they do if you're a musician and you're sitting home? You write music. <laughs> right. So I'm imagining this whole explosion of new music that's, that's going to be coming right. out. Well, and, and, and hopefully not all about COVID, you know. So uh, and even writing a book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm doing that. Okay, uh, your book, Charity's Children, uh, Long Days and Nights of the Iron Man. Is it out now? Is it all? It's, a, it's, it's out. It's it's a, it's available on Amazon or through Barnes and Noble, or I sell it through my website www.westernmirrors.com. Westernmirrors.com, and I can. I can, you know, it's easy to get people autographed copies or personalized copies that way. Okay, let me mention, okay, so the art that you mentioned too, that's on your website, and that's why you call it westernmirrors.com. So right, they, that uh, was the first thing I did was I made mirrors, and, and so the, the did, website- Does it have like boots on it or something on, on your mirror? I have boots on them. I, initially, that's what I did was just put cowboy boots on them, and then I started embellishing them with hand tool leather or saddle parts or- spurs and all kinds of different kind of hides, animal hides, buffalo, elk, deer. Okay. And you mentioned that you're working on something for the children's hospital in New Orleans. It's it's early, but uh, it, and without, I don't know whether they're gonna wanna do it. It's, it depends, but I've offered them to, uh, one of the most significant people in my training and at charity and LSU and Tulane was Dr. Rowena Spencer. Okay. And uh, uh, trying to do a tribute to her. So it may happen, it may not, but hopefully it will. Okay. And you're in the conversation, you mentioned Dr. George Ollier, who I think is just a very important person. Uh, Larry, yeah. Because he pioneered developing that whole uh, hospital project. And it was so a Larry, Larry, Larry started the first vascular training program at LSU and the first, people don't know this, the first vascular training program at the Mayo Clinic. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Well, thank you very much. It's been very interesting. It's very uh, uh, delightful. Good luck for your book. We'll look at And again, the website is, what is it? Western Boots? Westernmirrors.com. Yeah, Western Mirrors. Not where you expect to find a book. If you go to there, uh, you can look for his, uh, his book, The uh, Charity's Children, The Long Days and Nights of, of, of the Iron Men, but also you can find his art. And uh, I've enjoyed it very much. Thank, Thank you. you. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it very much. Appreciate you having me. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Louisiana Insider. Subscribe, like, and rate our show where you listen to your podcasts and follow us on social media at Louisiana Life Mag. Executive producer for Louisiana Insider is Kelly Massico in cooperation with Louisiana Life Magazine. For subscription information to Louisiana Life, call 504 828 1380. Our theme music was provided by Rich Collins. Hey, that's me. Join us again next week for more discoveries inside Louisiana. <laughs>